Everyone, welcome to another VC Wisdom podcast. Today with us, we have Philip J. Pipkins. He's a founding partner at Prospect, and we're going to discuss a lot of things that uh, can be relevant for VCs, for founders, and so forth. Phil, can you introduce yourself briefly and tell us a bit more about Prospect? So thanks, Charles, for having me. Again, Philip Pipkins, founding partner of Prospect, which is a venture debt fund. Uh, or actually we're an investment firm and our first product is a venture debt fund. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about venture debt and why you decided to, to launch that first product out of your fund? Yeah, no problem. So my background is in banking, or actually if you go further back, I actually have a film degree from Arizona State University, Go Sun Devils. But essentially at some point I kind of switched over to doing marketing and when I was doing marketing, I was doing marketing at a startup and that startup happened to do like intellectual property law. So basically seeing the full swath of all of the types of companies. And so at that point I was like, I really like to do this. And so the building that I was in for that startup happened to be next to Silicon Valley bank. And at that point, that's how I kind of networked my way into the bank in order to actually start very entry level. So I started on the phones and I worked my way up to being a, you know, uh, engineer, product manager, and then finally uh, VP of the Southwest. Yeah, very, so, very impressive. I'm just curious, why did you choose banking as well? Like, why was finance and money so important for you? Uh, so coming out of school, you know, I'm, my background is kind of, you know, lower, lower income, middle class type of situation. So at one point I, you know, realized that one, I wanted to pay off my student debt <laughs> and wanted to, you know, kind of get my mom a, a home. And so at that point, chasing filmmaking probably wasn't the most lucrative thing at that point. And I had what I actually, to be candid, what I did was I looked up all of the richest people in the world. And then I cataloged what they did. And so it was like finance, real estate, startups, and entertainment. And then I went and I looked back again and I just seen who was the first person that I kind of see myself as. And it was Robert Smith. And so that, and he does investments. And so that's why I chose uh, to start doing finance. And again, the building was next door. So I networked my way in there. And so once I got into Silicon Valley Bank, then, I mean, the rest is kind of history. I mean, like I said, I started very entry level, but was able to move up very quickly at the bank, learned a huge amount because the thing with Silicon Valley Bank is that they are a startup bank that also banks the VCs. So by osmosis, I learned about venture capital, learned about debt, learned about markets, learned about startups. And I learned about how startups fail and you know how you can try to de-risk those investments when you're going about it. And so at Silicon Valley Bank, their main bread and butter is venture debt. And so what venture debt is, is um, typically banks will look at you in order to uh, collateralize against something. Maybe they'll collateralize against your real estate. They'll collateralize against your, your revenue uh, or they'll collateralize against you as a person, personal guarantee. Uh, most startup founders don't have the capability to do that. They're not in revenue. They don't have any real estate and they may or may not have the personal means to do that. So income's venture debt. So if you can raise a venture capital round, then what will happen is, you know, a bank like Silicon Valley Bank or a debt fund like us will reach out and say, hey, um, we've seen you raise that money. We'd like to tack on some debt to the back of that. And so the parties involved are the founder, us, and the VC. The founder and the VC like it because that money comes in and it extends their runway without a large amount of dilution, which they just incurred. 
And then on our side, we like it because essentially if they raise another round, then we will be paid off. And so everyone wants this company to raise another round essentially. Yeah, question regarding this. I've been studying the VC game for quite a while. And I also understood that VCs, I mean, it's it's not like all pump and dump, but you know, it's just you invest in a vehicle and that vehicle may add value to lots of people, may even be profitable, but a lot of VCs, one thing that is not often talked about is just that it's a vehicle and you want to push for the next rounds and you might want to exit on that next round or some of them just stay until the IPO and just kind of pass that or, or try to make believe it in the value to something and finally it's pushed down to consumers and then you can get like a huge return on your capital and that's the and I'm I'm telling you this not as like a an activism of, of some kind of, but more of a businessman, because I've been trying to understand the model for quite a while. It's like, why is VC so, so interesting here? Well, first, I don't have to invest my time in, in that business. I just have to drop them a check. And then um, that check may materialize into something of value. I'm not saying that everyone is, is being duped because people are smart when they invest in companies and consumers when com- when companies go public, uh, they're you know they're educated most of them and they can min- make some decision. But is that like a true advantage of investing in VC, just like pushing a company down the road and uh, trying to to make others believe that they they can be valuable? And I mean that's no no one can predict the future. So is that like a the the big why behind VC? Because for now. To me, this is like my, it's probably the second reason why I'd go into VC after the, the first reason being that I don't have to invest lots of time and energy into these these startups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think, honestly, the whole idea of like, just put money into here and push it down the line and hopefully someone else will buy the, these shares, uh, or at least they'll buy this company in order to mark up our books. Um, I think that's what you're seeing is the result of that happening. So that's why the market is constricted. Is it, in real life, most um, companies uh, are not fit for venture capital. Uh, venture capital is really for is it's rocket fuel, and so most co- most companies are regular cars, and so they need regular gas. Maybe some of them need like premium gas, but they definitely don't need rocket fuel. And so if you were to put rocket fuel into a regular car, you break it. And that's what happens with VC. So the real idea of VC is that you're supposed to be looking for the biggest ideas possible that likely could fail. And so if you're truly doing that, then yes, you will invest in things that will fizzle out because the idea is that the one or two things that really do pop off will make both your fund, (laughs) make your name, and also, you know, probably make the area that you were in. So that's the real rationale behind VC. And that's the true good Midas list style VCs. They actually are doing that. But the in the last, I don't know, five years, there's probably been a deluge of like 1,500 new VCs that have come into the market. Yeah. Um, and not everybody should be a VC either. So you're yeah. just seeing that a power law exists on the companies and a power law exists on the VCs as well. Yeah. Yeah, power law. And lots of these companies, like you said, fail. 
investors and VCs are looking for kind of 10x investment. That's that's like the, the common norm. And mm-hmm. let's take Uber, for example. Uber founded by Travis Kalkanik. Basically, he he was like in charge. Travis wasn't like the technical guy who was seeking for, for funds and, you know, kind of all went down with, with the, the SoftBank thing. And then they, they IPO'd. They, yeah, obviously they had a product. They had a huge uh, total addressable market. I guess it was scary. So there were like high chances of failing and, you know, blowing all their money in, into legal fees and so forth. So we, we never really knew that it was going to work. But still, you know, like I think investors, I think it was Bill Gurley in that case, they invested lots in there. And, you know, I think it's in their interest to kind of even pitch Uber to other investors to, to kind of boost valuations, but not too much because when you, you come to the IPO and you've got like a, a market check that might like all, all fall to the ground, you know? So my, my thinking here and my logic and my kind of questions is is behind behind closed doors when you you talk to other VCs is it in their interest to kind of you know boost valuations round after round and um, push mm-hmm. it towards the the next investors or are they careful doing that because it might implode if they do too much of that? Yeah, so I mean, so in the Uber case, from what I understand, first off, Bill Gurley he already knew about network effects. And so he went out of his way to try to find a, a company that was using uh, network effects and geolocation. Also, from what I understand with Uber, Travis and them, when they had first built it, it was actually uh, profitable. So it's spitting out cash, making money. And anyone who used it, they were like, wow, this is, this is magical. You know, most companies that you encounter are not, you don't feel that way where you're like, wow, this is, this is awesome. And I'm going to use this going forward. So that is the real reason why Uber actually was able to become this, whatever, $200 billion company is because no matter what the uh, valuation was, mm-hmm. people were constantly using it yeah. constantly. And yeah, it was yeah. getting more people use it, more drivers, the, the flywheel kept on going. So that is when you can see that this is a hyperbolic, true rocket ship style, mm-hmm. you know, it's hit, it's hit escape velocity because yeah. there isn't a person that is not, you either use Uber or you use Lyft. Yeah. And typically you're only using the differences because of the price or because of the availability. And mm-hmm. so that really is why it was able to grow in valuation. But yes, for the most part, the VC game is that you put the money into the company you try to help them the best you can by, you know, influencing them through board meetings, maybe giving them some help in terms of advice. And then also you're using your Rolodex and your connections to hopefully drive customers and talent and other investors to this deal. Because I think that's one missing piece that people don't understand is that VC puts money in. Now the VC goes and sells this company backdoor all day long. We're always talking about com- like when I'm meeting other investors, they're like, what companies are you looking at? And then all of a sudden I'm a big salesman and I'm like, here's the three companies that I'm looking at. I like these. This is why I like them. And I'm pitching on behalf of the founder to another investor. So yes, you're always trying to get people excited about your company so that one more customers can come there and two, hopefully more investors can come there. So that is certainly the game, but it won't work if you're 
company uh, isn't growing in revenue or uh, users? Yeah, well, I mean, you need basic growth. You can always kind of make the numbers sync for you uh, in reports at the end of the day, uh, which is what, well, not too much, right? There's always like some some kind of equilibrium in there. Um, but I have this, this weird thesis as well that in, in uh, Travis case, for example, of course he had this dashboard mentioning that he made like, uh, I don't know, like 150 bucks per minute, but did he have a dashboard also like of lawsuits per, per day, you know? Probably, yeah. well, maybe he did, but didn't show to investors. My case in point is that these founders, I think they're, they become checkmate once the, the, ment the mentality is not there anymore, once the energy and the mindset is, is just not there. And I think that's what uh, Travis had, you know, like he had so much ambitions, he was really cocky and so forth. And ultimately money is, is energy, you know, and I'd put uh, a lot of money behind uh, a racehorse like that, you know, that never yeah. stops. It's very aggressive and, you know, it's like we'll do anything to make it succeed. So once you have that vehicle as a, as a VC, and I wish, you know, like VCs would, would talk more about that. I think it's, it can be a, a safe bet. And I think that founders on the other side that do not make it and stop everything is just that they panic and they, they go into some kind of mindset crisis and then they're like, yeah, first I'm stressed. And second, I don't have like much hopes into this. And sometimes they're right, you know, but sometimes also they're, they're wrong. So I'm curious, what, what kind of characteristics or, or skills or quality do you look into promising founders that you invest in? Yeah. So first thing is first, I'm, I'm looking for excitement and energy around the idea. So that either comes from you being a relatively youthful. So, you know, youthful people are definitely going to be more energetic or you're coming from uh, being a, a shmi, a, su a subject matter expert. So I'll definitely take the person that was working at a bank. They were making good money. And then they're coming to me telling me that they're going to leave the bank so that they can start up this fintech to solve a problem that they've had at the bank the whole time. That's a great opportunity there because this person obviously is making money and they're deciding to forego this money in order to do this idea. There's got to be something that they know that I don't know. And there's clearly a little bit more confidence because I'm like, oh, well, why would you leave the bank? And they're like, don't worry about it. That confidence and that secret that they have definitely would be looking for that. The other thing is, you know, skin in the game. I didn't understand skin in the game until I started doing these investments. So, you know, as a GP, you have to have 1% of the fund as a commitment. You don't have to, but you should. And so that means I put my own money into the fund. And so now that my own money is in the fund with everyone else's, I actually understand where the money came from. <laughs> it came from their retirement accounts, their bank accounts. And so it's all fun and games until you realize that you're taking money from someone's retirement account to put it into an idea that possibly could work. And once you think about it like that, it's like this idea really needs to be baked in order for me to take your 401k money and put it in here for you to hopefully give it back. Because if you don't, that person's out their retirement money. So those are a lot of the things that I look for is like skin in the game, subject matter expertise. Uh, it would be great if you could build it because you're cutting costs. So hopefully have some sort of skill. Maybe you can do the finances so you don't have to have a CFO. Maybe you can, maybe you're an engineer so you can you know, run that. Uh, you can build it with your own bare hands. Maybe you're a product manager so you can reach out to engineers and get them at the cheap and, you know, enlist them to do a, a, a project that 
they didn't even know about. So those are all skills that you really need to have in order for someone to be able uh, to invest in you, in, in my opinion. Skin in the game is quite uh, interesting. For example, Travis, I don't know why I keep coming back to that one, but he has <laughs> his, his brother and he wanted to prove that he was right on one point. And I think these details are weeds details are in the weeds you know like basically why why are you so motivated to succeed do you want to prove a peer of yours that he uh, was wrong of that or do you want to prove to your ex-bosses that you, you can be successful i think when you dig down to the the deep why that that's when it come that that's when it becomes really interesting and also while you were speaking pretty sure that's going to be the the future but You talked about energy, and I'm a huge believer into that. I think that in the future, some people are going to make their health data public. For example, I don't have my Apple Watch now, but I have my Aura Ring, and they're going to put their, their sleep metrics. Do they sleep good? Do they have energy? a lot of energy per day? Do they work more than average? Do they have a normal heartbeat level? And I think these health data can really tell you about the energy output of someone. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it would be compiled with a bunch of other things. But I think this is this is like the future of health tech also to get, you know, just a, a loan at the bank or, you know, your oh, wow. insurances and all that. I think that could be quite a cool idea. What idea, recent business idea did you have and, and what trends have you been seeing nowadays as a VC that might be interesting, i.e. GTP trees. Yeah. Oh, the GTP. So oh, one so one thing on the chat, GTP. I feel like that's kind of exposed the 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 divide between true creative people and then more technical folks. So from what I can tell, the people who are really excited about this are not actually creative, right? So I, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen a single screenwriter <laughs> mention, oh no, oh no, I'm so scared. Like creativity. So from GTP, chat GTP, it's giving you this from consensus. And from what I understand, creativity is made from constraints, not con from consensus. So if you were going to make something creative, you'd have to make it from your own self and it would have to be new. If you wanted to make something consensus, then you would just look at everybody and then you would uh, consolidate. And so From my standpoint, that is what chat, chat GTP is doing is consensus, not creativity. And so I think that it will aid people who are truly creative. So like, you know, I, like I said, I have a film background, I could probably, you know, tell it, Hey, my, make this screenplay for me. It spits it out and it's going to be in the correct style and everything. But then I would go and edit it accordingly so that I can put my own flair back into it. And then I didn't have to write 90 pages of a script. So I think that that is a, a huge use case that will come to be. And with that comes basically creator tools. So as you can see over time, uh, most of the tools that are coming out are allowing a single person to elevate their voice to every single person and then make money back from that. So the trends that I'm seeing is like smaller teams, solopreneurs, solar solar, solo GPs, people just doing bigger things with smaller teams. And then also people being able to spin up quick teams to get things done and then spinning them back down. So I think the future is going to be very much uh, things that focus on media. And then on the flip side, I think we're also going to be moving towards more uh, hard tech 
and and by hard tech i mean you know things like better semi obviously better semiconductors solar clearly climate so i was in the accelerator and most of the funds were climate focused so i thought they i thought it was i thought it was a niche but it seems that climate is a humongous trend that's coming and from what i can see it looks like climate is definitely more hard tech and so i feel like is going to be a renaissance of people who can actually build hardware that we're going to be able to utilize. And I love hardware more than software because, you know, you can have, you know, you can have old hardware that's clearly outlast the software and people will build more software for hardware that people continue to use. So retrofitting hmm. is also another trend. That's interesting. And yeah, I've seen my fair share of climate tags this year, you know, these, huge machine that uh, take carbon out of the atmosphere and uh, pack them up. And that, that was a cool one. I also love simple ones like uh, ecology.com that share their numbers um, on open metrics and think they make like 300K or, or 500K per month at this point. And all they do is they take your money and they plant tree, you know, and they use Stripe and that's it. It's really simple. And then you can see your little forest online. So it's a cool example of, of SaaS and GTP3 and uh, these kinds of technologies. I think they're, they're, they can replace like at least 50% of the low level force as of now, for example, yeah. you know, I'd, if I would ask, you know, let's say that I would still uh, like back in days, hire $3 an hour people in India about like 10 ideas to do this they would take probably like two hours or three hours to do that. And their ideas wouldn't even be that good. GTP3 does it in uh, two seconds. And just by scouring the web, I can certainly see GTP3 scanning my uh, standard operating procedures and being my ideal assistant, you know? Like, hey, what should I do there? And GTP3 just tells me like stuff that I've written 18 months ago, but I've, I've forgotten. And I can see so many use cases and, Indeed, I mean, it's a, it's a small step, you know, for sure. It's exciting and technology-wise, well, it scraped a bunch of pages and, you know, the neural networks came in with some recommendations of, of what uh, should be said, but there's a bunch of critics as usual, you know, like, hey, this is nothing groundbreaking or GTP3 doesn't understand. Well, sure. I mean, it's kind of a tree, you know? And I mean, if you ask a human, if he truly understands something, Bottom line, most will not truly understand the, the bottom, bottom and the semantics of, of one thing as well. That's not to be forgotten. So I think, well, what we're seeing nowadays is certainly not an AI winter coming, but like an AI summer. If we're seeing crypto winter, I think we're, we're seeing like a, a burgeoning of uh, AI and yeah, with like companies like copy.ai, Jarvis.ai and so forth. I think these are going to explode like especially next year and jarvis has already been exploding i think they've got like 1 million uh 1.5 mrr 1.5 million mrr what other niches have you been seeing exploding nowadays we've talked about pipe last time about like what happened with their founders that was an interesting fintech but yeah, uh, apparently yeah. they're not doing so good as of now yeah that's the uh... So, you know, being in the in the debt side, another trend that I'm seeing is that so there are there are a large amount of fintechs out there that are trying to get into lending. So, you know, Stripe, Afterbooks, yeah, Afterpay, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of folks that are lending and 
I, you know, from, from what I'm seeing, it's, it's hard to really lend at scale first off. And if you're going to be lending at scale to startups and then the market churns on you, that's going to be highly painful. And the other thing is that because they're doing that scale, they don't actually have the means to do the true due diligence. So, you know, when we're going across and looking at a lot of companies, for the most part, it looks like you can go get quite a few of these fintech loans at the same time. And so you can get them all at the same time and they're not really looking or talking to each other, then you are over, you know, overcapitalized with no way to pay it back. And again, there's no real mechanism for them to like reach out with the relationship person. Hey, how you doing? What's going on here? It's, you know, they really just remove your availability based off of algorithm, algorithmic um, situations. And so with that, I feel like a lot of these fintechs are going to uh, feel the burn and maybe not fully go under, but they will change their credit criteria, which will restrict it on a lot of the companies that were able to get it in the first place. So like in Pipe's instance, you know, their whole thing was it was a marketplace, but they seem to have gotten over their skis and that they added way too many different categories. When they were doing just SaaS startups, made total sense because everybody with an Excel sheet can look at your forward-looking revenue and, and discount it by 80% or whatever, and then give you money. But once you start getting into movies and crypto and you know, fantastical things like that, they're, they're not good bets and they're not good debt bets either. And these companies will uh, feel that because on our side, if we had one bad loan, it would take like, like 10 loans to make it up. So imagine if they're doing volume at like 10,000 loans and then they have a, let's say they have a 1% loan ratio. Imagine how many loans they have to do in order to make up for the losses that they're incurring. Because most banks have like an under a 1% loss ratio. So yeah. if you can't do that, then you're, you're, you're smoked. Yeah, I can see a, a, a future in which, you know, there's an algorithm that evaluates the the worthiness of someone of, of getting that loan and their probabilities of success with a bunch of data points, mostly by scraping stuff, ideally online, that's publicly available. Um, I can certainly see as a consumer that the, the markets are pretty much rigged. Yes, you can be a, con a consumer at like many different banks, but sometimes they don't loan uh, loans to people that actually deserve these loans. Um, the, the Visa MasterCard market is dumb, you know, duopoly, that never works. So I think there's space for more players, but yes, indeed, they need to be careful. They need to have like a special recipe to do that. And I think the recipe when you do this as well is to become too big to fail so that if they ever fail, the government rescues them. I think that is kind of the recipe of, of big bank, but yeah. I can certainly see a, a lot of, opportunities in that sphere to because there is clearly a market need businesses tend to be less risky than humans and last question for you related to that phil you told me that you invest in underrepresented folks i am a huge believer in the chip on the shoulder syndrome that travis had and a bunch of successful folks had obviously when you look different than most like people will judge uh, how do you make sure to loan something to someone that has a, a chip on the shoulder, but that is not too big so that his ego will take him down? 
or her down. Yeah. So, you know, the, from my standpoint, a lot of the issues with the, the representation in uh, VC and then the startups is by osmosis to your network. So VC is 100% relationship-based. You might think that, yeah, I could you could spin up a website, people could apply for it, and then you'll just give them money. That's not a true VC. It's, it's 100% relationship-based. And so if something's relationship-based, then that means I got to be your friend. <laughs> and how am I going to be your friend if I have nothing in common with you? And so that's that's really the issue is that if I came from a under if I came from a poor background and this VC came from an Ivy League background, uh, we don't have much to talk about. We don't watch the same shows. We didn't go to the same places. We don't eat at the same places. We might not even watch the same sports. Maybe maybe sports is the thing that can connect us. But there has to be quite a few things that we can connect on because we're partners for like 10 years. And so I feel like that is you know some of the disconnect there is that the vc has to be your friend and so if you're reaching out to this person and you couldn't imagine uh having a drink or a coffee with them for 10 years then they're not going to be a good uh partner for you and so by osmosis when you have a, a vc or a fund manager who is from the same backgrounds as the people that they're investing in then they'll have stuff to talk about so you know i can certainly talk to younger people because I'm a little bit younger. Obviously, you know, brown folks, I can talk to them. And, you know, I have the background necessary to uh, understand where they're coming from. But I also have the knowledge base from, you know, the bank and the financial institutions I worked at. So it certainly is back to, you know, that relationship piece. And so you, you, you got to be able to be friendly with them. Yeah, I can relate to that i mean ivy league again i think when you're investing in someone you're always looking for the one percent most ivy league will not be like won't be good investments um because they don't have the chip on their shoulder they just have mom and dad to rescue them like all the time but when we get the specific combination of an ivy league such as zuckerberg or Evan Spiegel from Snap, like you, that's that's a really strong uh, racehorse. They've got the intellect and they've got, you know, the the guts as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that can be cool. And I think like with these type of folks, you can always meet them on the intellectual side of things. You know, these guys, they just like to learn and they just like a good conversation. Well, to me, well, when you said Ivy League, I would picture, you know, the arrogant bro that thinks he's just better and doesn't can cannot use a, a nice conversation with someone to learn more like we're doing today but phil thank you so much uh, for the interview today it was kind of cool and i learned a bunch of things where can people find out more about you so you know i'm on linkedin mostly uh, i have a twitter account but i can't log into it so don't do that so linkedin you know philip j pipkins and then our website is prospect Co. So P-R-O-S-P-E-Q dot co. Um, and then if you're in Arizona, you know, I'll usually be around coffee shops. Um, yeah, feel free to reach out. I'm, uh, I'm not Hollywood. You know, I'll, I'll chat with anybody. <laughs> Thank you, Phil.